Hey guys, and welcome to episode number 87. Oh my goodness, I'm so glad to have you back with me, and I'm really excited for today's episode. We have a special guest, and we're talking about one of my favorite things in the whole wide world, and that is simple and plain living, which is what the pioneers did. That's how they lived, was simple and plain, and I think in so many aspects, we need to go back to that and bring that into our modern lives, which is kind of the whole thing of the Pioneering Today podcast, right, is what we talk about and we do here. But one, there's actually two cultures that really embrace this way of life, probably even more than a lot of homesteaders or off-gridders, and that is the Amish and the Mennonite communities, which I have always been fascinated with. My great-grandmother was actually a Mennonite, and I wish that I had known her and, and got to pick her brain a bit more. So I'm really excited because today we are diving deep into that. I've got um, our guest on the podcast. Is, her name is Georgia, and I'm super excited because she um, was raised Mennonite partially. She attended a Mennonite um, church with her family when her children were growing up. They were a part of it, and she's also written some Amish and Mennonite cookbooks. So she has um, a bit more of a, a background and, and hands-on tangible experience with them than I do. So I was really excited to talk to her and we share some great tips and stories. And she actually cleared up some things for me. I had some misconceptions about the Amish um, that she really helped uh, bring to light, which was really cool. So we talk about all that fun stuff and I'm really excited for this episode. But I felt like I needed to open and tell you guys that it has been almost, actually I think it's been a little bit over a month since I posted a new episode. So my apologies for not being as regular as usual with the podcast, and rest assured that won't be the case. We're going to get back into normal swing here of getting the episodes up, but part of the reason for that, and I'm kind of excited to share it with you too, is I have launched what is called the Pioneering Today Academy. So what that is, is it's an online e-course where I show you with videos, um, download guides, like really hands-on, in-depth, how we do everything. It's walking through everything that we do here on our homestead. And so there's four modules in the Pioneering Today e-course. And one of those is raising your own livestock. So raising your own grass-fed beef and pork and our chickens and actually showing how we butcher the chickens and process them. Like every step in video um, along the way to show you how to do it. We've got a seed saving course. So all about heirloom seeds and how to seed save them, talking about cross-pollination and self-pollination. And then we've got growing your own fruits and vegetables, which goes all the way from pruning to picking a garden spot, putting in an orchard, and using natural methods, um, troubleshooting, especially with tomatoes. We've got a whole section on tomatoes to growing really healthy tomatoes, so they give us massive harvest and produce so that we can then can those bad boys up, which is the fourth thing in the Pioneer and Today Academy is our home canning with confidence course. So that has just launched, and so I'm doing new videos up every week um, for the members of that, and so that has been taking up a little bit more of my time um, because we just launched and people are joining in, and it's been really awesome. So that's like your full-on, if you are like, I am doing the Simple Life Living Pioneering today, that's, that's where we're at. So the reason I'm telling you about all this, because you might not have known that Pioneering Today Academy even existed or the Home Canning with Confidence course, and I am getting ready, and I didn't want to put off publishing this episode any longer because I feel like, oh my goodness, it's been so long, so I'm putting it up, but what I'm doing, and this is where it's really cool for you too, is I am getting ready to release a mini series sneak peek at the course and the videos. And so you will actually get to see some of the videos taken directly from the course and you get those for free. So I'm getting ready to do that. I don't quite have that all up because it um, involves some technical details to get all that up. So what I'm doing is if you want to get access to those free videos, which you do, you want access, my friends, then you need to go to melissaknorris.com slash free videos. There'll be um, a web page that comes up. You pop in your name and your email. And as soon as those videos are ready for you to view and for that mini course, then I will shoot you an email and you'll be able to, to watch those, to log in and grab those and see them. And there will also be a pretty cool discount coupon included if you decide that you want to join the Pioneering Today Academy. But if not, they, like I said, they're actual video lessons from the course 
Um, and, and the members are voting on what are their favorite videos. And those are the ones that we're going to pull from to put up from you and you get free access, which is pretty cool. So I am super excited now for us to get into the rest of this and for you to listen to today's episode because it's way cool. And so this is tips and lessons um, from the Amish and the Mennonites for Simple Living with Georgia. So welcome. We have a special guest on the podcast today and her name is Georgia. And hopefully I pronounced her last name correctly and I'm sure she will let me know if not. But Georgia Verosa, did I get that right, Georgia? You did very good. Woohoo! And I am really excited, and I think you guys are going to be excited too to talk with Georgia today because Georgia has like two of my favorite things combined in one. We're such and it's such for a treat. She is a canner, which y'all know I love my mason jars. And not only that, but Georgia is also the author of the Amish Canning Cookbook. And now you'll—I'm excited to dive into this, and Georgia will tell me more. But you have a bit of an Amish and Mennonite background, Georgia, correct? Correct, I do. I there's plain sex in my background. I can remember my Mennonite aunties coming to visit us when I was a little girl, and um, they were wonderful farm women. And they actually taught me how to embroider, and they brought me a set of pillowcases. I probably wasn't more than about six or seven years old, and I still remember them. They were uh, little squirrels, two squirrels on a tree branch. <laughs> And I just thought that was so cool. And so they taught me how to embroider, and I was on my way. <laughs> oh, now, and I love so. that. You know, embroidering is such an old-fashioned skill that I don't think many children today, some people might not even know what embroidering is, but I don't think there's many kids that are taught embroidering, especially as, as children, like they used to. I agree. And we... There were four girls in my family, and um, we sewed all our own clothes. Mama sewed all of our dresses until we got old enough to sew ourselves. And I can remember hemming uh, dresses for Christmas service, you know, like the day before. And yeah. with four girls, that was a lot of hemming. But I happened to be a really good hand hemmer. So I was the designated hand hemmer <laughs> of all of the dresses. And that it was a lot. That's, and, that's how and I also, yeah, I also attended a conservative Amish Mennonite church as an adult. Um, I no longer attend that church, but when I was raising my family, we attended and, um, because I was exploring my roots and there was a plain church just up the road from me. And so we decided to attend and went there for several years. And I still have some friendships from that time. Oh, and I love that. So I have a couple, I have, well, I have lots of questions, but I have two <laughs> pertaining to what, what we were just talking about. So how old were you, do you think, when you were doing all of that hand hemming? Oh, golly. I think I was... I mean, I know that by 10, I was the designated hemmer because I can remember the dresses. Uh-huh. And, and in, um, in the public school we attended, we had home ec in eighth grade. It was sewing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I'd been sewing for years, you know, but it was like, oh, good, I can make another dress. And I remember that dress. It was hideously lovely. I had picked it all out myself, and I got to go a little bit wild for me, you know. And um, it was a bright calico, and I just loved that dress. And my mother, of course, w w when she saw what I had chosen, <laughs> I think she had to bite her tongue not to say anything, but she let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is so, so true. I think as parents and moms, there comes a time when we're just like, okay, I'm going to let you make this choice. And you, as long as it's not harmful, we just let them go and do it, even if we're not quite sure we agree with that. <laughs> it's so true. You know, I um, use, in fact, speaking of sewing, I, I do, I spin and, uh, you know, yarn and knit and I've had fiber animals over the years and, and I actually use a treadle sewing machine instead of a powered one when I need a sewing machine. You do. So even now, you still use the treadle sewing machine. I do, and many of my kitchen appliances are non-electric. I'm quirky. 
<laughs> no, I I love it. Now my mom has a treadle sewing machine, and I believe all of the parts are functioning. But she doesn't use it to sew with. She uses her regular electric sewing machine. And then I'm kind of kind of funny as I actually prefer to hand sew, especially with mending and even with quilting. But the real truth of that is, is because I've never gotten really comfortable with my sewing machine. <laughs> I get it. And that's why treadles are so nice because, it, you know, they're, they're straightforward. They really are. I mean, about the only thing that ever happens is you have to oil them and maybe the, um, you know, like the band will break and you have to get a new one, but it's, they're slick. Do I you, love my treadle. I actually have two. I have an antique white, and then I have, um, uh, believe it or not, a modern, um, I don't know how it's pronounced. I think it's Janome or Janome. And then I have an Amish-made cabinet that I set that into because that's what a lot of Amish women use today. You can do some decorative stitches and buttonholes with it uh -huh. all on a treadle machine. It's neat. That is. So then do you, like when, uh, you know, a part goes wrong on it, or for, say somebody was wanting to get a treadle machine, of course, you know, sometimes you can find the an antique ones in stores, they're harder to find. So then do they actually make new treadle sewing machines that you can purchase? Yes, it's the Janome. And it's that it, brand. It's that is. Seven, yeah, 721T. And um, a lot of people will take that machine and fit it into an old, like an antique um cabinet you know from the old singers i don't know that whites fit as well the cabinets but i think the singer cabinets treadle cabinets fit it perfectly or okay. like me you can have a finely crafted amish made cabinet you know it's new uh -huh. and it's wonderful I do want to ask, too, for my own, to make sure that I have it right in my mind, and then for the listeners, too, what is the actual difference between Amish and Mennonite? Because I know there's a lot of similarities, but I'm assuming that there's a difference, otherwise they'd be called the exact same thing. That's true. And, you know, I mean, if you go into the history of the Amish and Mennonites, they were all, um, they, they were all one group. Um, and then they had certain disagreements, and so then the Mennonites um, and Amish split off. But now there's certain, and generally Amish are considered um, more conservative. And up until fairly recently, they were always horse and buggy. But there are Amish people now who drive, you know, cars. Uh -huh. The Mennonites. Um, uh, there are still horse and buggy Mennonites. And in fact, there's a couple of sects of Mennonites that are the most conservative of all of the plain groups. Mm -hmm. um, the church I attended, <clears throat> you know, they drove, um, they drove vehicles, but they had to be one color and they could never be red. You know, there's still <laughs> certain rules that you have to follow. You know, we covered, the women covered and, um, and had plain dresses. It was just all the same pattern. We just made it bigger or smaller, depending on if we'd gained or lost weight. <laughs> and, um, and generally from my, this is just my perspective, you know, from, yeah. because there's so many different groups and there's so many different, um, even within a group, the communities can vary somewhat. But um, I find that Mennonites in general are not, you know, they have a church building. Mm-hmm. And the men still sit on one side, the women sit on the other, they sing a cappella, um, but they, they'll sing in harmony, whereas the Amish do not sing in harmony. They oh. sing in unison. And then um, the other thing is, is that Mennonites, to my way of thinking, are more um, interested in outreach. They have like this bit of evangelical outreach, um, you know, mentality. Uh -huh. Whereas the Amish are, are much more closed. You know, even if you were to somehow, which there's been very few, become Amish over time, they still consider you an outsider. They're very cultural. Now, the Mennonites, especially the more conservative ones, you know, like there were some of the older uh, women mostly because I mostly was, you know, had friendships with the women. Mm -hmm. um, in When I attended the Mennonite church, the older women I noticed sometimes if um, had a real cultural um, bent. So in other words, because my family hadn't maintained their plain 
roots. Okay. I was considered an outsider by them. And, and they weren't rude about it, but you could certainly tell. Right. So it makes it hard for Mennonite, you know, or plain Mennonite, because then there's the general conference Mennonites, you know, they're pacifists, and you can't tell the difference between them walking down the street and anyone else. Okay. Um, but in the plain churches, it's pretty hard to, to feel totally a part of the community. Okay. So then, you know, like within the Mennonite plain, like, cause so you were, you attended, um, it was a Mennonite plain church. Very, very plain. Very plain. So then does everybody live really close to one another or are people traveling, you know, like how close knit, um, is everybody in proximity as far as like their homes and then are the children, I'm assuming the kids are homeschooled or do they have their own plain school that oh, they go to? Yes. And in, in this community, there's a school. And, um, and they're, you know, sometimes it might take them a half hour to get to church, um, depending because, um, I live on the West coast and, um, there, there's a lot of grass seed farmers in that particular church and you need a lot of acreage. And so they're somewhat spread out. Um, but, but it's not, you know, I mean, even though I lived, I was probably 35 minutes away, people would still come to my house. And then we'd meet them if we, you know, needed to can a mess of whatever, mm-hmm. you know, bigger than our gardens could handle. And I had a really big garden in those days. <laughs> you know, we'd meet at a, a U-pit field and there'd be, you know, 10 women with their kids. And we'd kind of descend on the fields and, you know, we do that with strawberries. That was because strawberries take a lot of space. If, I mean, if you make a ton of strawberry jam and you yes. freeze them and, you know, so strawberries was always one. And then I personally had 53 blueberry bushes. Oh, wow. Mature blueberry uh-huh. bushes. And that's an awful lot of blueberries. And yes. so anybody from church who wanted to could come and, you know, pick blueberries. If you when you go into a Mennonite church or if, if say you wanted to attend one, then are they fairly open to having someone come and visit? Or how you know, or how how would you go about that if there was a Mennonite community near you and you wanted to kind of visit their church and stuff? Um, you know, how would that work? Correct. I understand your question. Um, and again, I can't speak for all Mennonite churches, but I can tell you my experience was they were very welcoming. I mean, I went, you know, I, I my family and I, when we went the first day, we were promptly invited to lunch after church. Oh. <clears throat> and um, they, they were, on one level, they were just the nicest bunch of people you could ever hope to meet. Um, and... You know, I mean, the my, the experience was wonderful. Now, my sons um, went to, you know, they would have revival in October after harvest. Mm-hmm. And we'd go every night, you know. And, and then there was a summer. I it was, it was like a Bible school, I guess you could call it, for kids. And they would go there. And, um, and it was really funny because, you know, you, if you were to, say, go stand at the edge of a public school playground, you see kids pummeling each other and pushing each other and stuff. And the Mennonite children are very, uh, they don't, they're not like that, but, but they are still kids. And so when they run around and play, they pinch each other. Oh. <laughs> My sons just, they, you know, I said, I said, this is just so wonderful, you know, innocent me. And one of my boys looked at me and he said, mom, he goes, they're the best pinchers there are. So they have their way. Kids will be kids. They just do it within the context, I think, of what's, you know, what they can get away with and what's acceptable. (laughs) Oh, I love that. So it's actually funny. My, my, let me think here. My great grandmother was Mennonite, but I, you know, she was passed away long before I was born and, and I don't really have much family history on, I, they came out from the East. I'm in, on the West coast. I'm in Washington state as well. And they came out from back East area. So I'm not sure once she got out here to where they settled, there wasn't a Mennonite 
um, settlement or church or anything. And so she, uh, you know, didn't didn't have the community of Mennonites. So she still, you know, went to church and, and practiced a lot of the plain things, you know, canning and, and growing mm-hmm. it yourself and that kind of a thing. So I think I'm always especially interested in the Mennonite. I love the Amish too, because they're both and I love that you gave me that little bit of history that they're both plain sex and they kind of started from the same thing and then and then branched off into, you know, their own separate thing. So I find that really interesting. So for you, having had much closer family ties to actually being being active Mennonites than I do and then being in the church and stuff, what are some of the things that you have learned from them or really put into practice in your own home that you would say, you know, from being in, in that direct content or that direct upbringing, other than that embroidery, which I love. I also did embroidery samples when I was very young, and I'm excited to start my daughter with that soon. So, Oh, good. Well, you know, gosh, do we have the time? First of all, <laughs> you know, my mother um, was my first, if you will, household mentor. My mother was um, an interesting woman for what, you know, if I do say so myself, she was highly intelligent. Um, But she was also very content to raise five children. And um, I, you know, one of my earliest memories, let's talk canning, for instance, I was just, I mean, probably somebody would say, you know, step in today and say, you can't do that. But I'd stand up on a chair, my sister and I would stand, my twin sister and I would stand up on a chair and help mama with the jams and jellies. And she'd melt the paraffin, you know, that was in the days where we'd, we'd scramble and save any kind of jar we could, you know, we didn't use canning jars. And um, well, for some things we did, but we'd make the jam and jelly and then we'd pour it into the cleaned uh, glass containers. Mm -hmm. And then mama would let us um, pour, she'd put it in a, like a liquid cup measure and we would carefully pour this melted molten (laughs) paraffin (laughs) over the tops of the jam and jelly for her. And so for us, you know, we always had a garden, um, and I had one lone brother. There were four girls and one boy, and my brother gardened with all of us. You know, it wasn't like it was just a, you know, a female thing. So we always we always lived kind of closer to the land, I think, than uh, maybe a lot of our contemporaries did. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so. For me, you know, when I got married you know, eons ago, <laughs> uh, you know, I I married into a family that would have just probably gasped in horror if they if cotton, you know, 100% cotton ever touched their skin. I was really <laughs> like a fish out of water in that family. Only I was too innocent to know it. And so they asked me, you know, they said, you know, give us your list for your gifts, you know, like the gift list for so that right. guests could yeah. buy gifts. And I I didn't know they meant things like silver patterns and china patterns because I didn't want <laughs> that. So I put, among other things, you know, I had rake and shovel and all-American <laughs> can. I wanted an all-American can, canner so bad. Oh, I love it. Oh, and, you know, and, and my future mother, she looked, my mother-in-law, she looked at me and she goes, what is that? And I said, oh, and I started to explain and, you know, I could tell her eyes kind of glazed over. <laughs> and so, and I, but I got it <clears throat> and it was wonderful. And like I put cotton sheets, you know, and I got some, I don't, I'll bet they were really expensive sheets because they were a really fine count caught you know Egyptian cotton the Egyptian cotton oh my goodness and I know and it was like they didn't they hardly felt like cotton to me and so you know for me I mean I've always done it you know I had as soon as I got married boy you know I put a garden in our little place and and then I went to the U-Picks and I I canned somewhere around 25 quarts of tomato sauce because tomato sauce is if I were to pick one thing I couldn't be without, it would be home canned tomato sauce. Yes. <clears throat> and, yeah. you know, I hardly, and I did a few other things too, but I had so many of them left at the, by the time the next season came around uh-huh. <clears throat> because I would, but I admired them all the time. I'd open up my little pantry cupboard door and I'd look at them, you know, and I felt so rich. Okay, I am so glad that you said that because I always wonder if I'm weird because when I get done canning, I like to leave a couple jars on the counter counter so I can look at them for a few days before I put them up into the pantry. And then I get this immense feeling of 
satisfaction and not pride in a bad way, but I do the same thing. I love to open the cupboard doors and look at those mason jars filled with home canned food. So I'm glad I'm not the only one. That does no, that. amen. I am like that too. And another one that I, and I do this cause I do that too. I leave my jars out, you know, and it's like after two or three days, you know, somebody's yes. doing, you really need to put those away. I know I'll put them away, but I do, I can, uh, uh, Oh gosh, you know, 40, 50, 60 jars of tuna every year. <clears throat> do you do tuna, by the way? No, just because we don't. Uh, my husband doesn't fish. I, I So I haven't canned tuna, but we get a lot of salmon. We're on the river, and oh, okay. then my husband is blessed through his work. His boss has gifted them some salmon before. So um, I do. I can salmon and chicken, and actually one of our favorite things to do is to lightly smoke the salmon and oh, yes. then can it. Oh, <laughs> That, yeah, that is just... We do that. One of my sons is an avid hunter and fisherman. And, and, but like I currently have halibut. He just got a halibut like two weeks ago. Oh, how nice. Oh, I know. We're saving. Do you know about halibut cheeks? No. They're the very best part of the halibut. (laughs) And it's like you hide them and you don't want to share them. It's all you can do to be, you know, to share them. They're so good. (laughs) And so we always take the cheeks and we cut them into chunks, and then, I know this is horrible, but this is what we love to do. We bread them and deep fry them. Oh, no, that's not horrible. <laughs> oh, and then we eat them, you know, with malt vinegar, and it's it's just, it's so good. I can't begin to tell you. But And then he also, um, because of where we're located, he gets uh, king salmon, and he gets, um, which, I, and, and I used to think I loved king salmon the best, but he started steelhead fishing. Yes. Do you guys, I don't know if you've ever had steelhead, but it is so good. It's amazing. Yeah. And that's more, that's, that's, we get a, a little bit of both, but steelhead is runs in the river where we're at. Oh, good. So yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I love that. When you were talking about the cheek part of the halibut, I'm giggling because we're kind of like that with the backstrap of the venison. <laughs> of course, me too. Backstrap, it's the best. And we always, you know, celebrate. If anybody gets, you know, like a deer or an elk, we always do a backstrap barbecue. Oh, it's so good. In fact, you know what I had last night for dinner? I had a grouse. I love grouse. Grouse is one it's, of my absolute favorites. Yeah, oh, good, because most people have never had grouse. And I, you know, I had that, and then I had some beets, you know, and I thought, this is living. How, how could anybody not want to try and take care of themselves in those ways? That's why I like canning so much, too, because, you know, with, um, you know, it, like if you freeze what happens when the power goes out? And I don't know about you, but our power goes out every winter. Yes. And so for me, canning is wonderful because I know it's just sitting there safe on my shelf. Yeah. And what I love too is we, yeah, we lose power every winter. And sometimes it, even in the summer, we, um, we live in a, in a, in a valley and the wind will channel right, just right through, through our mm-hmm. little valley here. And so we'll lose power even quite frequently in the summer. In fact, every year we have a 4th of July barbecue at our home and we've lost power during the middle of the barbecue, which thankfully is outside. So it's okay. But I, I'm with you. I love having the jars of home canned food and I even prefer it in certain instances over dehydrated because when our power goes out, we're on our own. Well, my water goes out. And so with the can jars, their liquid in most things is already in there and I could just heat it up on the wood stove and I'm not trying to find the water, you know, in order to rehydrate it or extra water for cooking because it's kind of all there in the jar. Agreed. I I totally agree. And you know, um, to that end, I always, when I do tomato sauce, I always pull off the juice. I use a Victorio strainer. So I can quart jars of tomato broth, but it's not like, it's not, I mean, it looks kind of like chicken broth. Right. And it makes it, it makes a great base for all sorts of things. And then I always take my turkey carcasses. Yes. And sometimes my chicken carcasses, but always my turkey carcasses because we have a humongous one every couple times a year. Mm-hmm. And I burble that in my biggest pot on the stove, you know, and then I take a bit of meat, but I'm, I'm 
I don't put a lot of meat in because usually we've eaten most of it. Right. <laughs> but I have quart jars of turkey broth. And, you know, it's good. And sometimes on a winter day or if we've lost power, I can throw a handful of rice into that and cook it, you know. And um, and we have turkey and rice just kind of all in one pot. And it's kind of like a mushy soup. It's not really a soup, but it's, you know, it's got quite a bit of rice in it because right. I can feed more people for one thing. I and it's, you know, I do stuff like that all the time where I've got the makings for soup, you know, liquid for soup canned and it's easy and it's quick, which by the way, do you can dried beans per chance? I do. I do both actually. I do can up dried beans and then we grow a shelly bean that we call an October bean. It's an heirloom bean that actually came with my, my ancestors from <gasps> back east and so in the sum, late summer and fall, I can those shelled beans fresh, obviously, because I'm harvesting them. And then I also can dried beans, too, you know, like pinto beans yep. and, and different things like that. So I don't go grow quite enough of the October beans for that to be my complete, you know, dried bean or that kind of shelly bean for us for the entire year. So I supplement with some of the pinto beans and then I'll can those dried into, um, you know, baked beans or, you know, just whatever whatever I need. Exactly. Now, I know you're interviewing me, but I have to ask you this. Yeah, go for it. So these, the, your October beans? Yes. Um, do you let them dry on the vine or do you let them pretty much dry on the vine and then, you know, lift the plants and like lay them on a sheet or something? Because the thing I found, which sometimes is hard for me here, at least, and I'm in Oregon, granted, not in Washington, and I'm kind of near the coast, uh-huh. is sometimes we just run out of growing season because they take like 105 days. Yeah. Yeah, it, that that is definitely true for us, especially when we have one of the those the end of summers that's real wet. So it's yes. almost like your growing season is cut even shorter than it should be, but not by the frost, but just by the damp, wet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I do both. I try to harvest the first part of of the when they first come on. I always try to get those shelled out and harvested when they're fresh and they're not drying yet. You know, they're mature on the vine, but but they're not at the dried out point. And then I I can at my first runs of those. And then as the rest of the harvest comes on, depending on how the year, the weather is going, um, we'll do both. If it's dry enough, then I just let those continue to mature and dry on the vine inside the pod. But like you said, if it's getting really wet and, or a storm's coming in and I know it's going to be more than a couple days and it's going to, you know, be really dampening. Yeah. I will just pull them up. Um, and a lot of times what I'll do is we don't actually have a garage, um, at our home. So everything has to be done in my house or outside. So (laughs) a lot of times what we'll do is I'll just pull off the vines and make sure that they're not, you know, the root and dirt isn't coming in with them. And then we'll just put them in a big five gallon bucket kind of near the wood stove where it's dry and they're in the bucket, but I don't have the lid on. And so there's still some you know, ventilation. And I'll just leave them in there for a couple of weeks and check them periodically to make sure they're not starting to mold and then let them finish drying there. And then I'll, I'll finish shelling them out, um, you know, in the evening and in the, you know, winter as it, you know, time allows. (laughs) Right. And I was just curious because, you know, mold is a real problem for us in the Pacific Northwest Yeah, with anything like that. And sometimes, you know, you think that they're fine in the pod, but you have to really be, you know, watchful. Yeah, I don't leave them in the pod, generally speaking, for the entire winter. I have left them in there for a month or so and, and and then gone back and shelled them. But honestly, when I went back, there were some pods that when I opened them up, there was some mold in there and then I had to toss them. So, you know, it's kind of a, a gamble if you do leave them in there time-wise. Sometimes that's just how it's going to roll and I'll lose some. But I, I keep the majority. But I do shell them out. I don't leave them dried in the pod um, for the whole year until next planting season. I'm glad to hear that, you know, I, because, you know, I, in 1999, I did, I went through the master food preserver. Yeah. And I, um, you know, I mean, I'd been already canning for a good 20 years on my own and, you know, plus growing up in my mother's home. And so I, uh, one of the, I think the, probably the best takeaway for me Mm -hmm. was, um, exercising care in um, the use of canning recipes. You know, like I was still using a recipe. I, 
I, I shudder to think, but I didn't <laughs> kill anybody. Um, that was my grandmother's for pickles, and you know, and I realized pretty darn soon it's not safe. And you know, yes. by the grace of God, I haven't sickened anybody. Right. So, and I think that if I were to say anything to to listeners, that would be what I would I would you know plead is you know make sure that when you're canning, you use up to date. Um, times and methods because, you know, there's a lot of research that goes on like at universities and the government um, <clears throat> on what is considered safe. Now, it's also true that they haven't covered everything. So, you know, I say if you were going to use a recipe, you know, really that, that wasn't, you know, quote, safe because none of the, you know, the extension services or the government has said it is, be very careful. You know, you hear of people can, especially like people who are, um, that, you know, they're, they're like, like preppers, I guess you would call them. Yes. Yeah. And you go on to their forums and you see them doing crazy things and, you know, like, like canning cheese and butter and doing uh, stuff in the oven. And, yes. you know, I think to myself, just get a cow and milk it twice a day if that's so important to you, you know? Yeah. But, I, but, oh, yeah. Anyway, I, that, I, that's really important to me is that always people exercise care. And then, of course, having everything clean. Um, yes. You know, that's important. I always, I always uh, disinfect all my surfaces before I start. And, you know, of course, I sanitize my jars and, you know, and, and put all my utensils that I'm going to use. I put them into like simmering water. I mean, I'm just I'm careful. And I, you know, to my knowledge, we've never been sick because of my canning. <laughs> yeah, no, same here. In fact, I, I'm so glad you brought this point up because it is one of my pet peeves is seeing people take so much risk with canning when if you're worried about your, you know, your milk, then for heaven's sakes, freeze it. Yep. You know, I let my freezer be for the things that aren't safe to can or that don't hold up to canning. So, you know, in the freezer, I I will freeze butter because this girl ain't going without butter and I don't have my own milk cow at the moment. So I freeze butter. I freeze dairy quite often. It freezes wonderfully, but for heaven's sakes, <clears throat> don't can it. Get powdered milk. If you are worried about having right. milk in your food storage, then go the powdered route or freeze it. Or like you said, get, um, you know, find a local source that you can either, you know, go to a neighbor or get, um, you know, without going to the huge grocery store or, or yourself. But don't can it. And the other thing that I'm glad is some of those older canning recipes, and this is where people just don't know who are beginning to get into canning or their grandma's is teaching them, which my grandma and my mom taught me how to can as well, just like yours, but is to know the newer updated recipes, you know, like immersion or, or flipping jars over is not considered safe processing anymore. You may get a seal, but it needs to be put in that immersion of boiling water to make sure that any contamination that could have made its way in there is gone. So we don't just put hot liquid in a jar, throw that lid on, turn it upside down, and then turn it back right side up and call it good. Because a seal does not... Not anymore. Not anymore. But a lot of those... I used to do that for years. Yeah. So canning safety is a really big deal for me, guys. In fact, I actually have one of the videos that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that we're going to be putting up for you is on canning safety because there are a lot of things that are going on that are practiced or advocated or shown online. It's unintentional that people just really don't know that it's unsafe or understand the why behind why some of that's unsafe. And so you go and get yourself signed up for our free video series because one of those videos is going to be on in particular is canning safety so that you can can with confidence and know without a doubt that what you're doing is proper procedure and safe recipes. Um, for you to put your food up at home. So again, you can go to melissaknorris.com slash free videos, or if you just want to grab the links and you're listening to everything that we're talking about, or you want to read the blog post um, that goes along with this podcast episode, you can always grab those at the website, melissaknorris.com, click on the podcast button, and this is episode number 87. So you can grab all of the links and things that we're talking about during the episode there. But canning safety is a really biggie for me, so I want you to go and get signed up so you can grab access to that free video. 
Right, but not anymore. And the same thing with the wax. In fact, when I first learned how to make jelly, I went down to my grandma's and she still used the wax on the jelly, which is what you you know, you shared and that's how they did it back then. But now, um, you know, it's not considered really a safe practice because mold oftentimes would start to develop underneath that paraffin wax. Uh, oh, it and, would. and we just scrape it off and eat I the jelly. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I think about that now and but you know, uh, I mean, and we would keep jelly on the table. We wouldn't keep it in the refrigerator, you know. We ate it fast because there was a big. We were a big family. Yeah. But it, and we used to do that with the uh, ketchup and mustard too. It was kind of like the condiment spot on the table. Right. Which, thank goodness, they have a lot of acidity and vinegar in them. Right. Not the jam and jelly, but at least the mustard and the ketchup. It still makes me nervous. But I know. I, know. I like. We, when I go into restaurants, and I know normally, because when I used to waitress, that the, the mustard and the ketchup would be picked up and put in the fridge or overnight. But a lot of times on the table, that ketchup, you know, it's left out all day. But <laughs> oh, that's true. You know what Ooh. I mean? You know, isn't that funny, the things? Yeah. But I'm with you. Is is I do not take chances in my canning. You know, right. I, I follow the most up-to-date guidelines, and I just don't take a chance. To me, it's not worth the risk. Um, of, you know, of sickening my family or anything like that. So I'm with you is very much using safety with canning and all of the guidelines. And then I know we are getting close to time, but I did want to ask you this. So a lot of times I, because I know that the Amish and the Mennonites are very much into, you know, cooking from scratch, raising it themselves as much as possible. And I love that. There have been quite a few times I have purchased an Amish cookbook and I've been highly disappointed at the amount of store-bought ingredients in there, like Velveeta cheese and... Yeah, and but let me tell you about stuff. Velveeta yeah, so, cheese. So please, please en- enlighten me as to this, because I was quite shocked. I was expecting a very from-scratch cookbook, and with the ingredient list on a lot of the things, I was like, what? <laughs> no, you know what? I've had I, I've written an Amish cookbook. I, I actually have written a number of them. And um, Velveeta cheese... You know, the reason, okay, let me backtrack. The Amish are not frozen in time. And I think that there's a lot of people who maybe they haven't consciously thought that, but they have this sort of, uh, you know, vision of them being these charming pioneers from 150 years ago. And maybe 150 years ago, they didn't look as, you know, well, they certainly didn't look or act as different as the general population, but they're very slow to change, but they do change. The other thing is, even though we all know that the Amish are incredibly hard workers, in fact, that's also one of the sticking points for people who join, who try and join, they Mm -hmm. literally can't work as hard as an Amish person. Those people can work like nobody's business. And, um... And, and, but they're always trying to find ways that are, um, okay with the Bishop Mm -hmm. to make their life a little bit easier. And Velveeta is a throwback to the days when, I mean, a lot of them, you know, they can't have high line electricity, but a lot of them have solar or they have, um, they generate it with a, like hydroelectric, um, windmills, you know, they do have electricity, but, but in times past, most of them didn't. And Velveeta cheese came along at a time when a lot of them might have certain ways of garnering electricity, but they didn't have these beautiful propane refrigerators or anything like that. So what they would do is they'd buy Velveeta because it's shelf stable. Think about it. Okay. It's shelf stable. You can stick it in your cupboard. And so the Amish women glommed on to Velveeta. The other thing is, is that there is a a core that seems to be gaining popularity within the Amish and Mennonite circles for healthier eating. Uh-huh. But they didn't think about that because they work so hard. They they just need calories, you know. Because some of us might go, yes, but Velveeta is there anything that's a food stuff in that? Right. And <laughs> yeah, they didn't care. They like the taste, and. And so, you know, whenever I hear anybody go, this is an authentic Amish because there's Velveeta in some of the recipes, they don't know. They just don't know better. It's true. They're, that Amish women use Velveeta. Okay. And, um, you know, and, and they, and so, 
And so sometimes you might think something isn't authentic, Mm -hmm. but if, but it is. And, um, you know, a lot of starch, a lot of starchy calories, a lot of sugar, um, you know, they don't, the, the, the truly traditional recipes, I mean, some of them I, I love, that's how we ate. We ate all those old recipes. You know, my, my Amish cooking, it was like I went through and wrote what I ate as a kid growing up and that I fed my kids growing up. Right. And, you know, because I had three boys that I'm pretty sure had two each hollow legs. They <laughs> ate like nobody's business. And we lived out in the country and they were busy boys. And I homeschooled them. Sorry if you can hear that. I've got my doors and windows open because I also don't use air conditioning. And so I cool everything down in the morning and then I close up and keep it cool in the afternoon. Oh, yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's totally fine. We don't have air conditioning either, but it's rainy here still today. So (laughs) I am so glad, though, that you brought up that point because I really, um, you know, you're right. And I think that I probably, now that you said that, I do tend to think of them as being the Amish, um, especially being 150 years ago, like it's frozen in time and they still live that way without the, the modern influence. But really, that's not, that's not the case. And so I love that you were, that you were able to kind of bridge that for me and kind of explain, you know, why you see that in some of the recipes and, and the, just, you know, the reasoning and, and the reality behind that. So thank you. You're welcome. And, you know, as a group, they struggle with things all the time, you know, and, and um, they struggle with modern issues like we do. They may not always be and often aren't the same types of issues. But, you know, like they struggle with the use of technology, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you wouldn't think that. But they do. And, and you know, they're just trying to, they're just trying to walk each day, um, you know, hopefully God smiles when he looks down on them. That's all they want. You know, they're not trying to save the world. They're just trying to live, you know, peace, peaceable and godly lives. I love that. And really for most of this, especially those of us that who are Christians, which a good part of my listeners are not, not perhaps all, which is fine. But I think that that's really what boils down for, for each and every one of us, no matter, you know, if you're Amish Mennonite trying to, you know, doing the modern homesteading thing or living in the city or, you know, whatever it might be is, is to just live honorable and godly lives. And that's going to look different in some aspects for, you know, for everyone. But I think that's what the base of it is. And so um, I love that. That's a good thing to remember. Sometimes we get caught up too much with the other outward stuff. Yes. You know, amen to that. And I also think that, um, you know, as a as a nation or world, really, we've gotten so far away from the ground. Mm-hmm. And I think that people more and more are realizing that they don't know the first thing about so much. And so there's there's that self-reliance streak in a lot of people, I think, that encourages them to to live closer to the ground. That's what I call it. You know, a, a, a simpler, you know, I call it plain and simple living. I, I think that people do that because they want to feel like they've got s- some control over their environment. Yes. And, I, and think- I think that's a bad thing. And I don't, you know, I think for most people, it's not a fear thing. I think that there is a core of people that, that are motivated by fear. And I, you know, I'm sorry about that because, you know, we don't need to live in fear. Right. Um, but, but to know how to do things instead of going to the store and buying them, you know, I mean, there's, there's just a myriad of reasons why that's good. You know, it's good for our souls. It's good for our bodies. It's good for our pocketbooks. You know, it it makes sense to a lot of people. Yeah, amen. and that's what I that's yeah that's what I really want. You know, that's what I love to teach women is that you can do it. Yes. Well, we are we are cut from the same cloth, absolutely, because that is that is exactly uh, my views and what you know, we do in my family and what I teach others on, you know, through the blog and the podcast and, and books. And, and it's so exciting for me because even though there is the struggle of technology, there's the beauty of it because now more than 
however, we can reach and teach people and there's more people who are wanting it. I almost think that this technology enrichment is making people go back to those ways more so and wanting to learn it. And then we've got this beauty of technology. I mean, you and I are talking from two different states right now that, <laughs> that we can reach out and teach and help people that we never, ever would have been able to do before this place in time. I agree. You know, it's funny. You can, Whenever you start talking, I think, it, can she somehow read my mind? <laughs> because that was my thinking exactly. I think that, you know, I mean, you know, there was the Industrial Revolution, and that changed everything, and it was a very chaotic, unsettling time for the world. And now we've got the technology revolution, and that, again, finds us as a world really in chaos and unsettled. And so I think that when you have those those watershed events in in history such as we're living in now i think that it really draws people to um to really take a long hard look and 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 not and say what is it that i'm losing in all of this and i think that that's what's happening now with a lot of people you know and it's funny because when i was raising my kids you know i'm older I, you know, I mean, we, we did things a certain way and I see like my daughters-in-law, you know, they're young moms and they're these like elegant beauties <laughs> and which I'm not, <laughs> never was. And they're, you know, and they're very modern in a lot of ways. And yet they, they are learning the old ways. And, and it's, so it's kind of like this new crop or new generation and you can speak to them because you're younger. Um, you know, the way I speak to them is an older woman who's been doing it for a whole lot of years. And there's some things I could teach you if you're interested, but, um, you know, I do, I see, I love it. You know, I just, I love that canning has come back into its own, you know, the back to the land movement in the sixties and seventies was pretty much the last time it was widely popular yeah and it's widely popular again my canning cookbook just keeps selling you know people want to know I know I I love it in fact um I I think this is the perfect spot to put this and then I I could talk to you all day Georgia but um, I know (laughs) I have to go get ready actually for work for my day job (laughs) and pretty soon that I know that it's yeah not nearly as much fun and important as this stuff but no (laughs) No, I get you. Right. But um, so George's cookbook is the Amish canning cookbook. And she was so sweet. So for those of you that already have a copy of my book, The Made From Scratch Life, you know that as a special bonus, we have a sampler version of George's the Amish canning cookbook that you got for free. So if you are listening to this and you don't have a copy, you need to go to the madefromscratchlife.com. And grab that because you will get my book and you get part of Georgia's as well. So, and you will be well on your way to canning. I, this has been such a fun interview. I've learned so much from you. We are such kindred souls. So thank you so much for coming and spending your time with me and sharing your knowledge and heart this morning. I really appreciate that you invited me to come on and speak with you too. And we are kindred spirits. That's all I can say. And to everybody listening, carry on and enjoy canning. (laughs) Amen. You guys, I am so glad that you joined me today. And I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I just love learning from other people, which is why you're listening to this podcast, because you get to learn from me and I get to learn from others and we all get to teach each other all of this awesome stuff. So thank you so much for spending part of your day with me and joining me. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.